I'm Laura Jones, and this is Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives. If that sounds like you or someone you know, you've got an idea for the show, please send us an email. That's radioactive at krcl.org. Tell us all about it. Perhaps there's a song that you think would be a good jumping off point. Tell us all about that, too. We'll play it on the show. Tonight, Great Salt Lake is getting saltier. Community co-host Nick Burns will talk about that and other microbial tipping points of our namesake lake with Bonnie Baxter, director of the Great Salt Lake Institute. Later in the hour, I've got a conversation with you that I recently had with Jen Plum. She's a pediatrician and a mom of a transgender child. She'll share her unique perspective on legislation, both local and national, targeting trans youth. There's an event coming up that I wanted to get on your radar, and here's a conversation I Zoomed earlier this week about it. In the Zoom room with me, I have Samira Harnish of Women of the World, a Utah nonprofit that helps women resettling in Utah uh, get acclimated to the community, get skills, create community. And every year they have an annual Women of the World fashion show to fundraise for the organization and its programs, but also to show all the different cultures that are now part of ours here in Utah. Samira, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Laura. How have things been for Women of the World since we spoke last over this last year of COVID? Uh, It's going actually okay. You know, I will say very, very, very busy, Um, especially with the 2020 until now, you know, even though the pandemic, uh, the offices did not close. We um, serve our lady with, of course, uh, uh, distance and mask and sanitizer and all these things. Um, So, yeah, we've been, I mean, we've been helping uh, women, uh, I think it's more than uh, 32 women, we got them a job because of the way of the pandemic, they lost their job and they came to us, you know, to apply for, um, you know, for for their uh, different job, of course, you know, because most of them, they work in retail and hotels and restaurants and these are the places they close first. Your whole focus is helping women who have been forcibly displaced make a home here as they resettle through various government programs, but also to build community through self-reliance and trust. And you've invited one of your clients to join us. Will you introduce us? Yeah. uh, With me is uh, Zabel from uh, Ethiopia. She is one of our uh, amazing clients that she is very passionate, very motivated uh, mother. And she's been, uh, you know, working, of course, uh, she took off today just to be in here and to make the people to hear her voice. Uh, she wanted to be one of the model uh, to rep- to present her uh, country. And Isabel, yeah. go ahead. Hi, how are you? And thank you. I, I have to apologize because we had tried to record this earlier in the day and I had some technical issues. And so hearing that you took off work for it, I am so grateful that you were able to accommodate it and uh, share your story with us. So you are from Ethiopia. Yes. Tell me a little bit more about where you're from and how you came to Utah. Uh, I am from Ethiopia, born in Ethiopia, but uh, before I um, stay Lebanon, Beirut. So with my husband, my husband, he is a refugee, coming with home here. So almost here five years. 
So what has Women of the World been able to help you do? Oh, for everything. I like people here. Everything helped me. Have you been using some of their programs or language or anything Everyone, else? everyone. I'm come here, everyone happy, happy smile, everything. We, we, we did help her actually to find a job. And uh, if there is any kind of a problem, of course, we advocate for you for the housing issue. Anything, and, uh, housing, or any, any issue I bring with me here, everybody <laughs> is... And you need to tell them maybe some of these issues so they understand what kind of program okay. we have. For, first coming here, I have problem with my my ex-husband. So I have uh, make here divorce paper or something like uh, make my rent home, something. I have so many problems, that's why. So coming here... Roxy, she's helping me too much. Samira, too. Everybody here, I'm helping. Helping you navigate all those different bureaucracies to uh, put your life together. Are you going to take part in the annual fashion show and share your culture of Ethiopia? Mm, Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about about the clothing that you might wear that would be evocative uh, of Ethiopia. Uh, I'm going to say it for her in Arabic to understand what she's saying. And then translate, saying. please. Sure. That will, the Mokin will be able to do the job with the job. Yeah. I'm going to tell you what she represents. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, that's the job. Yeah. We'll be able to do Okay. So the church. So I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna pres- uh, present my. Uh, uh, that's what she is saying. She's saying you know she will represent Ethiopia by wearing thobe, call it thobe, and this one we wear. Uh, she wore it in a church, in a, we a wedding, in a, any uh, celebration. We wear. Uh, she wear that dress. Yes. I would just like to point out to listeners that um, Zabel speaks at least three languages that I know of from this interview. <laughs> Arabic, Amharic, I think is what you said was your... your Amharic. Amharic. And, yeah. and English. And all navigating Utah in all of these languages at once, I'm guessing, can be quite stressful. <laughs> Uh, anyway, the Arabic, I like it Arabic because I haven't understand. It is not different too much. My Amharic half uh, speak like Amharic, the same thing. But I'm coming here English little bit hard, but I'm now working. I'm good. Uh, I know my, I have accent. <laughs> my pronunciation down slow. So, but I'm understand. Well, and then learning to understand the accent of some of us here in Utah can be quite <laughs> difficult, too. So, Samir, what's in store for the event coming up on March 9th? Yes, yeah. This is one of the fa- our fashion show and culture gala is our biggest fundraising uh, of event of the year, and the event is important because it give it give Utahns uh, the opportunity to learn uh, more about 
their new neighbors who bring their beautiful cultures and add diversity in our state. So celebrating International Women's Day is celebrating our wonderful, resilient, powerful women from all over the world, like uh, like Isabel. Um, uh, <laughs> and give uh, this one is give the uh, of course a day uh, give opportunity uh, for the lady, our lady, to um, showcase their rich culture and highlight their dreams, achievement, and achievements. That's so crucial too. I think to taking. Uh, you know, that step into the community is to share your story. And that's what is this opportunity uh, for the 12th annual Women of the World Fashion Show and finally in person, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why we are eliminating the the guests from 300 to 150. And everyone has to have the vaccine uh, card. And uh, of course, we are um, we have uh, mask if they're not wearing mask. Um, so yes, hopefully yes. everybody can be healthy and happy at that moment. So this is on March 9th, the day after International Women's Day. This is the event around which you you schedule this annual fundraiser. It's going to be at the Noir Event Center in Charlie Square in Salt Lake, starting at 5.30. We'll put details in the show notes, folks, so you can get your tickets. But what's the website where folks can learn more about the event, but also the great work that you do, Samira? Thank you. Thank you. So our you find all this information on our website, womenofwar.org. And um, uh, one, one thing is I want to share with the audience that we have, uh, I want to share the impact of for 2021. Uh, we, I mean, of course, 2022, it was really great. And 2021 is, uh, you know, higher impact is when every $1 in, invest in women of the world, our lady returned back to the, their, to the community, $3.15. And and uh, the the uh, the saving through customized service and advocacy, we saved two hundred and three thousand dollar, and the revenue for the women by increase one million dollars, one million dollars annual basis from job replacement and career development. So this is really amazing, and I'm very very proud of that. So as we continue to hopefully open up and put COVID in the rearview mirror, there are volunteer opportunities with women of the world. What kind of opportunities are there? Uh, let our listeners know how they can help you besides donations, obviously, of uh, a financial sort. Those donations of time are incredibly important to women of the world. Yes, of course. You know, one of the things is we lost many volunteers because of the pandemic and not on one one on one to be a friend with their new neighbors. So we are, the office is open. We have a big place that in here to volunteer to meet with the women one on one, teach them about citizenship, English, or any kind of uh, you know homework. Some of them in high school they want they need that help. So if you go to the website, there's a lot many. Um, way to be involved with the organization. And of course, I would never stop saying to be friend to our new neighbors is the most important things ever, just to be friend with them. And you are speaking the language English, 
And that's it. You know, you don't need to give money or any, just time from your, you know, once a week, say hello to them and be friends with them. And lastly, Samira, I got to ask, because of the work you do and then what's going on over in Ukraine, what are your concerns uh, before we started rolling this conversation for broadcast? You talked about the fact that we're still anticipating more refugees from Afghanistan, Syria, on and on and on. And now we're seeing at least 500,000 people by the last news report I read today being forcibly displaced from Ukraine. Yeah, I've been reading that actually, and I've been sharing that in Women of the World Facebook about how many women and children already within what three, four days. This is one of the things that remind me about Iraq, you know, my country where I came from. In 2003, it happened is the same thing. Overnight, million and million uh, refugee became um, stateless. And uh, I hope, you know, of course, we heard uh, America to bring uh, special women and children, they been uh, uh, need that help, you know, to come over here, of course, and we help them. And still, just like I said, still we are not done bringing the Afghan family yet and this war started, unfortunately, in Ukraine. Well, I wish there was a day when I could say when the world was closing because its services were no longer needed. But as long as they are, I am so glad that you started this nonprofit and continue the work today, Samira. Thank you so much for your time and for introducing us to Zebel. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you, Lara, you. for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Samira Harnish and Zabel Ayella of Women of the World. Check tonight's show notes for a link to the nonprofit's 12th annual cultural fashion show and fundraiser. It's set for March 9th at the Noir Event Center at Trolley Square. I'm Laura Jones. You're listening to Radioactive. And coming up next, community co-host Nick Burns on the Great Salt Lake, which is getting saltier, and why that's not exactly a good thing. International Women's Day is Tuesday, March 8th, and we're celebrating by amplifying femme voices from 6 a.m. to 7 p.m. KRCL's women DJs will all be on air one hour at a time, bringing you songs, stories, and voices from women worldwide and from right here in our own community. Tune in and turn up International Women's Day on KRCL, Tuesday, March 8th. 6 a.m. to 7 p.m. Details at krcl.org. This is Radioactive on your Community Connection 90.9 FM KRCL. And this is, as you well know, I am sure, this is a show for grassroots activists, for people trying to build up our community, for punk rock farmers everywhere, and all the DIY creatives out there. We are, of course, always your community connection. And this is an hour we can devote to what's going on locally, and we can move beyond a soundbite and actually talk to some folks about what's going on here in our community. Joining me on the show now, Bonnie Baxter, professor and chair of biology at Westminster College, as well as the director of the Great Salt Lake Institute. Dr. Baxter, hi. Hi, I'm, it's so fun to be here. 
Oh, I'm happy to have you here. So we've spent a lot of the last month or two talking about the Great Salt Lake. You are, again, the chair of the biology department at Westminster. You are totally into all these little microbes and all these little things happening in the lake. And I'm kind of looking forward to this discussion in a popular way, not a scientific way, but sort of looking at what's really going on in the lake. We've spent a lot of time talking about getting water to the lake. But I want to ask you about the lake itself. Yeah, good. Good. So most people know that, you know, originally the Transcontinental Railroad ran around the north side of the lake and we got all the golden spike and all those pictures. And we're trying now to get history straight to document the massive amounts of Chinese labor that went into that. But then I want to say 30, 40 years later, we, the Union Pacific folks, I guess I should say, built a basically a train track across the lake. And that seems to kind of set up where we are today. So can we start with a little of that history? Oh, yeah. Um, so the, the lake has um, several points of history about like the segmentation of the water, you know, um, Bear River, or sorry, Farmington Bay Wildlife Management Area was impounded like in the 30s. So that was kind of cut off for bird habitat. And uh, then we have, um, of course, salt companies that um, divert some water into salt ponds for evaporation to make salts and minerals. And, and then the big one was this causeway that was built between 51 and 60, or 59 and 61. Okay. So before that time, we kind of had mostly a free flowing lake. And then when the causeway was built, across at first it was a, a wooden trestle so the water could flow underneath um, but then the building on a kind of salty muck that it wasn't very stable and so they started replacing that with a rock filled causeway um, that had some holes in it it had some culverts but those got plugged up with salt really quickly and with the lake levels going up and down like a terminal lake does um, then that that really caused some problems in and the north arm got segmented off from the south arm and it doesn't get all that snow melt from the Wasatch Mountains so it really has gotten saltier and saltier and saltier over time and now the water there, this is water around spiral jetty, for example. So a lot of people confuse it with the causeway out to Antelope Island and that's not the same The the railroad causeway is north of there. Um, so that water has gotten, it's, it's as salty as water can be. It's holding as much salt as possible at that temperature. Um, so it is saturated, we say. Uh, so I study the little microbes that live there and um, do this extreme lifestyle of <laughs> salt. Oh, they're floating on their little backs and all yeah. that salt buoyancy. So, okay. So we had one great big lake. Uh, we built a railroad causeway across it, you know, 50, 60 years ago, at least rebuilt it 50, 60 years yes. ago. That basically made two lakes. But it sounds like people at that time thought they had this problem solved if they built some sort of passageways under the train tracks for water to go back and forth. Was the science just inadequate or was there, I'm going to put you on the spot, sort of a lack of caring about what happened to that whole north side? Well, you know, there is a history of, of humans being angry with this lake, I think, <laughs> because it was, <laughs> it was a lake that, and I've heard, I've heard uh, some discussed even in uh, some 
uh, native people's um, uh, oral histories about the lake, at least discussed about the smell and having to move where you live further away. Um, so there has been sort of a friction between Great Salt Lake and humans um, forever. And uh, if you read Fremont's journals, he's a particularly angry man um, about, <laughs> about traipsing huh. the muck and running out of water and his last ox dies and he thinks they're going to starve to death. And he's just really, Stansberry on the other hand was really different, very um, optimistic, if you will. But I do think the humans have, humans have had a um, kind of difficult Difficulty over time understanding the benefit of a lake that doesn't give you fresh water or fish, right? So it doesn't give the things that we usually look to water for. And um, in the 1850s, the homesteading laws that were actually incredibly racist gave white homesteaders the advantage over water rights based on beneficial uses. So if you're going to build a house, you get to have the water because it goes to your house. If you're going to build a farm, you get to have the water because you're irrigating crops. But you could take the water from people who were there before you. And yeah. um, so those water laws talk about beneficial uses and Great Salt Lake doesn't meet any of those. So it doesn't have a water right. And that that sort of legal piece of history has been uh, troubling. It's been a problem. But yet these days, and again, back in the 1800s, you needed water for your crops and water yeah. to drink because salt water was useless. Like you say, no fish. And right. these days, not so much fun to water ski uh, right. if, if there's a terrible smell. But we do see a lot of economic impact now. I yes. can think of MagCor that used to be one of the largest polluters in the entire United States was over on the west side of the lake where they would take magnesium and other you know rare metals out of the water. There's fertilizer. There's all these little magic brine shrimp that you know keep the shrimp flowing at restaurants for those who eat shrimp. So... It sounds like people have figured out how to tap the revenue, but nobody's figured out how to change the laws or they don't want to change them in yeah. terms of protecting it. And I think there's stuff going on in the um, uh, stuff going on in the legislature right now that that really could help augment some of the water rights and water laws. And Utah's basically having to work around that those federal laws because those aren't changing. So I, I think that it's super interesting to me as a scientist, I don't really specialize in water law, but, yeah. uh, but I find it fascinating that that's what's holding up the lake from having its own right, you know, uh, its own right to exist. But I have numbers in front of me and from a 2012 report, um, the, the industrial sector brought in uh, $685 million dollars that was in 2010 actually from so, the lake from the lake and, wow. and a, lot that, a lot of that is minerals um and i think 12 million of it is brine shrimp um so that is uh, the, there's seven thousand jobs in utah that depend on great salt lake um u.s magnesium corp still uh, that's their new name they do make um, magnesium chloride um uh, potash is made by Compass Minerals and Morton and Cargill make sodium chloride products on the lake. Um, so there are a number of mineral extraction companies and um, it, it, 
there are a lot of people in Utah that work there. So, so there is an economic impact yeah. if the lake goes away. And, you know, a lot of people say, well, the salt companies don't really need, they, they'd be okay with the lake drying up, right? Because it makes more salt that way. But actually, they need water to flow to get to their ponds. So it is, everybody, it's a really unusual environmental issue and that everybody's on the same page. When I'm in these stakeholder meetings, the duck hunters, the mineral extraction companies, the brine shrimp companies, academics, the nonprofits, um, all everybody wants to save the lake. Like wow. everybody wants to get water to lake. I've never seen anything like it. It's it's really impressive um, that we all want the same thing, and that's why things are finally happening in the legislature. That and and the infrastructure money that's coming from yeah, but from the federal government. It's amazing to have all those folks at the table and all rowing, to use a water metaphor, in the same direction, because yeah. really $700 million 10 years ago and 7,000 jobs, that's a lot of money going somewhere yeah. that isn't yeah. to those 7,000 people. Um, and we could all hope, again, you are not a water law policy expert, you know, you are a biologist, and I want to talk about the microbes and the biology, yes. but I guess I would throw this out there to your group. And that is, you know, internationally, we have seen rivers and waterways get personhood rights. And there That's is right. a movement in the United States to give a water, a, a personhood, if you will. So maybe there's hope for all of us, including all those little microbes. Yes. Do, do the To get into this discussion of microbes, because I don't <laughs> want to get too far away from that, is all this mineral extraction impacting their little lives? No, I don't think so. Not in a big way. Um, most of that's happening with this North Arm um, pink water that's hypersaline anyway. So mm. I do study the microbes that live there, but they're not a big part of the food chain as okay. the microbes that are in the South Arm. And so I can focus on that for a minute because I think um, those guys are really in peril. And um, if you if you remember from grade school studying trophic layers of any ecosystem, it's kind of like a triangle and the predators are at the apex, right? And, and, <laughs> and at the bottom, the bottom of that triangle is all green. It's all everybody doing photosynthesis. So the primary producers at that level is called in any system are the photosynthetic organisms that bring the energy from the sun and turn it into food. And then, you know, the... Uh, the next level up, animals can eat that that level. And so that foundational level in our lake is um, really in crisis. Um, and so uh, finally, microbes matter uh, in, in mm -hmm. the news. So I'm speaking out, like save the <laughs> microbes, right? Um, so the, the microbes that we study in the South Arm um, form these stromatolite like structures, we call them microbialites because there's lots of different versions of them in this lake. Um, and that's kind of an umbrella term for them. These microbialites are made of layers of photosynthetic microbes that are okay. bringing in all this energy and they are feeding brine shrimp and they are feeding brine fly larvae. And then 10 million birds come to eat those little guys. So if the microbialites die, then we are risking the lives of the invertebrates that feed all of the birds. And, and the, there's two ways that they could die right now. The lake is shrinking. 
So they, they are in the shallow margins where they can collect lots of sunlight, lots of sun penetration in shallow water, right? They don't want to be in the deep water where it takes longer yeah. at the sun. So as the lake recedes, they're becoming beached um, and they're drying out and, and they're not feeding the lake. So that's one way that we could lose them. And the other way is as the lake shrinks, it gets saltier. Because, you know, water evaporates, but the salts don't. They stay behind. So are, are we to a tipping point of killing off all, everything in the north part of the lake on the other side of the train tracks? Are we at a place where all that's going to be just dead salt? Another yeah. dead sea? Yeah. So I have studied these structures in the north arm of the lake, and they are dead. They, they uh. no longer actively precipitating. They're not doing photosynthesis. So um, when we get, we know that when we get to a certain salinity, they will die because the salinity of the North Arm is around 30%. Now the ocean is 3.4. So that's pretty wow. darn salty, right? So um, the, the South Arm right now is at about 14% and that's probably the lowest it's gonna go. And that's just from winter precipitation. Um, it was uh, almost to 16%. Uh, in the fall at the low point of the year. Wow. So we expect it to go deeper than that, even higher percent wise this summer. And can you can, can you compare that historically like 50 years ago? Yeah. So, so the lake uh, right now is, uh, I just pulled this up. Uh, USGS has a great website with the daily lake level. The lake level is 4191 today, it hit a low of 4190.3, that's feet of elevation um, in the fall. Uh, this is about as high as it's going to go. Wow. We'd, like, we'd like to see it at around 4200. Um, and basically, when it's at, um, when it is at its average level of 4200 feet, uh, the south arm would be around 11% salinity, which is a really healthy place for those photosynthetic organisms. Um, I spent the last couple of years on a salinity advisory council uh, working for the state of Utah, and we looked through all these papers and all the organisms that live in the lake and thought about all the research and salinity tolerance, and we came up with this really elaborate matrix that essentially says, when is it each species threatened? And the, the tipping point for this lake is about 16% salinity. And remind us what you just said the North was already? Double about that. 30%. Wow. Um, so when it gets above 16%, which we're probably going to reach this summer, um, these microbes aren't gonna do well, the brine shrimp aren't gonna do well, the brine fly larvae aren't gonna do well, the birds, you know, birds are they're going to either collapse or move, right? Um, so we we think that um, we're really close to a tipping point for this ecosystem. The, the piece of data we don't know is how long can the system be at that toxic salinity level? How oh, in other words, if, 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 if and when the south arm reaches 16%, right. is it going to be dead in a year or dead in 10 years? Exactly. Yeah. We don't know because nobody watched that. Nobody monitored that over time in the North Arm. So we don't we don't really know. We know it changed and it changed really quickly. But the the type of microbe that lived there changed. 
Yeah. Ah. But we don't know, like, if it could have recovered, you know, if it had been, say, these microbialites dry on the beach for three months and then they get a lot yep. of water, would they rehydrate and come back to life? Or are they dead after, you know, X yeah. days of the sunshine? We don't know that. We don't, and my lab's doing some experiments in that regard, but we don't have those answers yet. Okay. I mean, a lot of us, a lot of the public is very concerned about the birds and the, the migratory pathways for the birds, because that's very obvious. But what you're pointing out, of course, is that these little microbes are really an indicator species as they go, as they go dead, the whole entire ecosystem goes dead, which will eventually kill the birds or the birds will have to find somewhere else to fly to. Right. And I'm really not sure what that's going to be. That's um, exactly right. Yeah. Remind us again about your Salinity Advisory Council. Yeah. So um, the the agency that oversees management of the lake is called Forestry, Fire, and State Lands. And it's the state land part of it um, where the comprehensive management plan for the lake fits under there because the lake bed belongs to the state. Um, and so there is a Great Salt Lake uh uh, coordinator that works for the state, and she coordinates all the water quality, Division of Wildlife, all of the different agencies that have some stake in the lake or have some job to manage the lake. She coordinates all of that. Um, and uh, they put together, the Forestry Fire State Lands people put together this idea of a salinity advisory council to spend some time focusing on this issue of salinity and one question is, could we use the breach in the causeway um, to adjust the salinity of the lake? So um, I mentioned the causeway was built with a few culverts. And mm -hmm. um, as, the, as the causeway started to um, fail in recent years, Union Pacific came back in and um, wanted to build a breach in the causeway so we could get boats through. Um, because Great Salt Lake is a navigable, I can't say that word, navigable body of water, um, it is governed by the Public Trust Act, uh, okay. a piece of legislation, which says it has to maintain, boats still have to be able to move around it. So this breach was built and um, water can flow back and forth from the north to south. Uh, or vice versa. But yeah. the problem is the density is so different in the two arms that there's no mixing. It's kind of like salad dressing. Um, Interesting. So okay. There's very little mixing that happens and just locally at that area. But could we do something at that breach um, to send more salt north and keep the south arm a little less salty so that the ecosystem will be happy? Oh make our own cocktail so we'd start we're sort of kind of eco taro forming with the water yeah. interesting yeah. I, I know we have to let you go um dr baxter but in terms of the work that you're doing in your research are your students at westminster also on board are they involved yeah. in this absolutely yeah i have a team of students who are studying um these microbialites and uh, how they're behaving over time under desiccation conditions and under high salinity conditions um, and also what happens to the microbes when they get encased in salt like this, like yeah. they survive over time. So we're super interested in the foundation level of this ecosystem. And yeah, my students absolutely power everything we do. Cool. How about the public? How should the public be involved beyond the usual speak up? 
Well, the Senate floor is entertaining a whole bunch of Great Salt Lake legislation this week. And if anybody can reach out to their senator and make sure that they are voting in favor of these bills that are getting water to the lake and affecting um, the, the lake's right to water and water banking, that would be so helpful. Yeah, and I can't help but think we have the whole fracas over the inland port, which of course will <clears throat> push train and truck traffic. So one yes. might imagine the railroad companies making more money and they might like to contribute, but that's me being ever the optimist. Well, yeah, I think I think there are some um, other issues going on around the lake that we really need to care about, uh, like the landfill operation and the port mm -hmm. operation. And yeah. these things definitely can impact the ecosystem. But right now, if we don't have water, we're just going to have a bed of dust. Um, exactly. And, and that's that, unfortunately the direction we're going. Um, Dr. Great. Bonnie Baxter, you are the chair, actually, of the biology department at Westminster College, also an instructor, also the director of the Great Salt Lake Institute. I think it's fantastic to see local faculty and academics involved in our state and helping the state <clears throat> stay on track with proper yeah. science. So thank you for taking time to join us on Radioactive. Thanks so much for hosting me. It's been great. This is Radioactive, your community connection on 90.9 .9 FM KRCL. I'm Nick Burns. One in four Utahns has a criminal record. If you or someone you know needs help with the expungement process, visit cleanslateutah.org, a new nonprofit working to ensure that Utahns don't miss out on opportunities because of their past. Do you work for Adobe, Google, or American Express? If so, you can double your gift to KRCL through their matching gift programs. Donate today and find a full list of companies that match at krcl.org. Welcome back to Radioactive. I'm Laura Jones. Democracy Now! coming up at 7 o'clock. Liz Schulte's Root Awakening at 8. Maximum Distortion with Forgash and Cody D at 10.30. And then John Florence is up to start your brand new day at 6 a.m. All right, to close the show, a conversation I had with Jen Plum. You've heard her on Radioactive before in her capacity as the director of Utah Naloxone. But something you might not know about her is she's a mom of a transgender child. So I wanted to talk to her from that perspective. She's also a pediatrician. Two unique things coming together, and I think she gives you some great insights in this conversation I had with her, especially as legislation floats through the Utah legislature and nationally directly impacting transgender children and their families. Here's our conversation. Something much more personal that's hitting close to home against the backdrop of our legislative session, and that would be HB 127 and HB 11, two House bills on Utah's Capitol Hill, affecting health care and sports for transgender youth. Jen Plum, thanks for joining me again to talk about this in such a personal capacity. Thank you for having me. I think this is a really important conversation for a lot of us to be thinking about and having and and really diving into in our, our hearts and our minds. Well, and you have been up on Utah's Capitol Hill on these bills or talking about your experience as a mom. And also, they can't deny your credentials as a pediatrician either. So I'm hoping that your words landed well with some lawmakers up there considering these bills that would limit uh, transgender surgery for minor youth, as well as place limits on gender-based care for minor youth. And then this sports commission that really just makes no sense to me um, about basically deciding who is and who isn't female to compete in sports. As we all know, in high school and you compete in sports, 
scholarships can be on the line. There's um, the swimmer, Leah Thomas, I believe is her name, who is in all the news right now. Um, but I'm curious about your experience and that of your daughter. Uh, maybe you can give us a little background. Well, I think, you know, I have a kiddo who is not particularly drawn towards sports or competitive sports, has, you know, played different team sports here and there, especially as growing up. And I think that for her, much like for a lot of kids, it was a place to be around your peers. It was inclusion. It was, you know, participation. It was, you know, the pizza parties after or the, you know, Capri Suns and sliced oranges at, at halftime that, you know, we all kind of associate with those faces. And it was, you know, also, you know, the camaraderie of carpooling out to whatever field it was or whatever other school or court it was. So, you know, played a part of her kind of growing up, but was not something that was so important to her that she became really masterful at or that she was interested in pursuing. But um, as this has become more part of a dialogue about kiddos being essentially allowed to participate in an activity because that's what it is, right? It's allowed, whether or not you're allowed to do something. She and I've had some, you know, really kind of interesting dialogues and some really kind of heart to heart conversations about, well, what does it mean to be told you're not welcome somewhere? Or, or what does it mean to be um, ostracized, whether or not folks realize that it is an ostracizing sort of thing to be questioning whether someone is boy enough, girl enough, male enough, female enough already for these kiddos. And then to bring it into the law and to bring it into the Capitol and to bring it in, it's a lot. So, you know, when I first started talking to her about it, it was very, you know, kind of jaw dropping for both of us and really kind of just, you know, that crushing feeling of why would someone do that? Why would someone, especially given that there are so few kiddos that actually would even qualify. I mean, I think in the last um, house hearing, there are there four kids that are through the Utah High School Sports Association that have been essentially Something identified. Like that, yeah. Uh -huh. And there may be eight others um, who are not going through the high school association but rather are still involved. So you're talking about a dozen or less kiddos um, and to have there be so much emphasis placed on already pretty vulnerable population and a pretty insecure population and a, and a population that already feels pretty judged. Yeah. Um, when I asked her about it, she said, well, if their, if their goal is to keep us out of sports, it's working. She's like, there's no way I would even consider stepping into that space for fear of what the questions would be, or, you know, is someone going to actually want to do a drop your drawers check sort of scenario, yeah. right? So I think that for me, thinking about this, it all started kind of from that, you know, very personal, I love my kid more than I love anything in the world, and how it feels to feel that your kid is being treated inappropriately or treated cruelly. And then when I look at it as a physician and as a physician in pediatrics and in the emergency department, you know, where a lot of times we see kiddos in crisis and having mental health, you know, presentations when they're truly in those, those dark, dark spaces and they need help right now. Um, I can tell you that the last two years have been rough on our youth. Um, there is a lot of, um, 
you know, uncertainty to an already uncertain time and a lot of, I think, increased like continued siloing that's happened and they are, they're feeling it and they are as insecure, if not more than they've ever been. And they are especially feeling the angst that we are all feeling only with less coping skills. So, And in the midst of puberty, right? Uh, in the right. midst of all that confusion of adolescence and early adulthood. And who am I? And who am I going to be? And what do I want to be? And what do I want to be seen as? And all of it, right? So I think that when I look at it as a physician, and I did even testify about this, not this year, but last year when we were talking about the medical bill. And, and I brought it up to the legislators that sat on the committee when they were considering the legislation was, you know, we see every single type of presentation of a kiddo in a pediatric emergency department. We see sore throats and ear infections, and we see um, horrible traumas, and we see things like new diagnosis cancer, and we see diabetic kiddo. We see all the things, right? And, and we suicide are suicide attempts. I'm guessing, right? Absolutely, suicide attempts. We see ingestions. We see those crisis moments of a kiddo who identified that they were about to do something to themselves, but thankfully were able to ask for help and get to us. Um, and one of the things as I kind of tried to figure out a way to ask the legislature to use some sense here, and I said this to them was, you know, I have, and, and most physicians have, you know, the proverbial Rolodex or the call, you can call whomever you need to get assistance. You can call a surgeon, you can call a specialist, you can call a radiologist, you can call another colleague, you can call all kinds of folks to make sure you're doing the right thing by a kiddo. And never once, never once has it considered in my, come into my mind or any of my colleagues' minds that I can think of to come out of a patient's room and call a legislator and say, you know what, what would be the best thing for me to do in the care of this child, right? Like, that's just not a thing. Yeah. And I've never had a family similarly say, sorry, doctor, could you step out for a moment? Because I'm going to need to call my legislator and ask them the best thing for my kiddo. They may want to call other family members or they may want to call, you know, some other one that they know, another physician, or they may want to call clergy or whatever mm -hmm. their thing is. Never once. How do you, yeah, yeah, and I, I get that. How do you respond to folks who talk about um, fairness and equity for trans kids in sports? And again, you are a mother of a transgender daughter um, in high school still who has told you if their point was to keep me out of sports, it's, it's working. Um, and now there's this commission being proposed and the politics that would go into appointing a commission if it's passed that would then consider on a case-by-case -case basis. First, you have to decide to come out as a youth and say, I'm going to engage in this process, and then I have to submit myself medically and physically to a commission in order to compete. At the same time, I understand women who are concerned about the preservation of women's competitive sports. So what, what, what's your response? Yeah, I mean, it's it's... It's deep, right? Mm -hmm. And it's big. Michael Phelps has no response when it comes to Leah Thomas and, and the swimming. Right. And uh, it's right. it's hard. This is And this is wh where we grownups are supposed to stay in the room and figure it out. Right. And where we're supposed to be, hopefully, the knowledgeable and the thoughtful yes. and also the protectors. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's it's true. I mean, as, as a female who feels like I've on some level or another in different phases of my life had to fight for my space and fight for my right to exist in my space. I mean, the sciences and medicine have not always been the most welcoming to women, but 
I get that. And I do actually agree. Like we should be very thoughtful about women's participation in sports. We should be very thoughtful about the amount of resources we're putting into women's sports. Women should have the most beautiful gyms and, and all of it that the men's sports have. If we're really protecting women's sports, let's talk about that. If we're really, really protecting women's sports, let's talk about the predation that happens on our young girls with the coaches and the other staff. So yeah, I'm all about it. Let's protect women's sports from what the actual threats are. Let's talk about the eating disorders that come into certain, you know, depending on whether you're a gymnast or your your body has to look a certain way for you to be considered, you know, meddleable enough. Like let's protect women's sports. The threat to women's sport is not transgender athletes. Truly, I believe that. And this to me is a, a type of a kind of a moral panic that's been induced that doesn't, it, it doesn't land with me. I don't feel like, and you're right, there have been these phenomenal athletes, one, Leah, yeah. mm-hmm. who, you know what, for whatever reason, that person is a heck of an athlete and I love it for them. But we are an enormous nation. Like, how is that one-off anecdote potentially doing all of this? Yeah. And is that what we make legislation for? Well, and and I'll tell you, I I sat up in the most recent hearing, and I listened to Eagle Forum, or at least this person that was speaking for the Eagle Forum. I listened to them talk about my child, the problem. My kid is not a problem. Like my kid does their own laundry. My kid has straight A's. My kid got an award for being a kind human and and doing service hours and hundreds of hours of service. My kid's not a problem. Like I truly, I was a problem child. I caused all kinds of issues for my parents. (laughs) I know that's a whole show I want to explore. Yeah, that's a whole nother show. (laughs) I know what troublemaker kids are. I was one. But to hear someone refer to your child is a problem for being their authentic self and for being brave. Our transgender youth are the bravest humans I think I've ever met. And I met a lot of brave folks in my life. So uh, I want us to somehow, these dialogues are going to need to continue and and these spaces are going to need to be evaluated and explored, but the humanity Mm. has got to be kept in it because it's just not okay. And it's just not correct. Because someone's uncomfortable, they go to, well, that's a problem. Well, I'm not happy with where the conversation's going. I am appreciative that the conversation is happening on Utah's Capitol Hill. And uh, as much as I disagree with the predominant politics that's dictating where it's going, um, the conversation is happening. I just don't think we have it yet. Like we, we've got a couple more years of trying to sort this out. But I'm curious of your perspective, not only as a pediatrician, but as the mother of a transgender daughter, about the binary nature of how we slice and dice things. And um, if that's what we need to back up from and take another uh, look at. And I, I mean more than the yes, no, black, white, male, female. It's like when I look at sports, have we evolved now as humanity to maybe needing to organize our sports in a different fashion. Yeah, you know, it's. I think that that will be the interesting question of the next couple decades, right? Yeah. Because, you know, we certainly couldn't do it now. We couldn't change everything to just, not even just co-ed, right? Like just all participants, all comers. All we, weight we, class we or height class or something like that. 
Right, right. I, I mean, we couldn't just make the switch like, okay, starting 23-24, here's where it goes, folks, get ready. Uh-huh. Um, but there is, I think, going to be some interesting evolution in that space and you're and you're spot on with it. It's been the, the binary description of so many things historically, right? Mm-hmm. Or at least in, in our most recent generations that is going to have to be reevaluated. Um, and it does go a little bit to this concept of what a commission would potentially be tasked with doing in this space, right? Like, so, you know, you read those terms and to see like wingspan. Wingspan, stride. It's like, (laughs) how much more could it be a chart on the wall uh, of a a cow, right? And and it's just like, it's it's so unwieldy and people are so afraid of saying the wrong thing, which I'm sure I just did by saying a chart of a cow on a wall. And then um, being uh, responded to that in digital or real life, but um, I'm but it is taking out the human of it, right? Yeah. It's it's yeah. it's treating it like a like a okay. There's a set of measurements for a certain blank, whatever that's going to be, mm-hmm. basketball players, gymnast, swimmer, whatever it's going to be. And, and if you don't you fit don't into, fit. <laughs> yeah, you don't fit into said box, which means you can stride this far or I mean still wingspan. I'm picturing a beautiful, glorious condor when I, I know, you know right? wingspan. <laughs> and what does that mean for in general? Yeah. What does that mean for the phenomenal well, and what's that choice based on? It's based on a past performance of a quote-unquote champion. But then as we evolve and get faster, stronger, better, smarter, those things must change and we must change with it. And I think that's our, our, our big test. I'm curious in the time that we have left here, Jen, as yeah. a pediatrician, before your daughter came out to you, yeah. what was your experience of treating as a pediatrician transgender youth and can you offer any insight from that period of your knowledge to where you are now? You know, I think that, and and, and many of us that are practicing medicine in general, and, and especially in pediatrics, where we've got the kiddos, obviously, we're having this kind of conversation in our own minds with our colleagues. And we are definitely seeing more kiddos now. And I think that that is, for me, in my kind of estimation of it, a reflection of kids now being more comfortable in in having those conversations, having them earlier rather than later into their adulthood. Um, they are now feeling more affirmed by whatever it is that they're seeing around them that they can step into those spaces. Um, that concept of gender being just either A or B, X or Y, circle or square, whatever, how you want to look at it, that kind of the fluidity that's evolving in that space is is much wider than it ever has been. I can say I personally have, um, you know, just in the last couple years for me, you know, I walk into a patient room now and I introduce myself as, as Dr. Plum, you can call me Jen. I use she, her pronouns. And that's not something I was taught to do when I trained in the late 90s. That's not something I was taught to do when I had residency in the early 2000s. Um, And for me, that has meant I would like to feel like a safe space for kids. I would also like to normalize that who I am and me sharing with you who I am hopefully makes you feel comfortable sharing who you are with me. That's some bedside Um, manner there, Doc. 
<laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I would be, um, I did have to come home one day and I told my kiddo I'd had an overnight shift and you can get pretty wonky at three in the morning. Yeah. And I told her, I was like, oh, you're not going to believe what I did last night when I was introducing myself. And she's like, did you misgender someone? I said, no, 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 I didn't. But when I was introducing myself and I said, I use she, her proteins. And, she <laughs> and it was, I mean, I, I, I kind of blushed and the, and the kiddo, the, it, she was, it was this teenage kiddo who was like, Oh, that's funny. <laughs> so <laughs> thankfully there was a shared moment of humanity and, you know, three in the morning, we all get kind of tired and wonky ish, yeah. but, you yeah. know, I think that there is this, um, openness. I know at primary children's on the chart, there's kind of this flag banner at the, across the top of your chart and it will have your date of birth and your name and your blah, blah, blah. And it has preferred pronouns right there on the, on the top banner of it. So medicine is, opening its eyes. It's got a long, long ways to go, a long, long ways to go, but it is, um, I think, frankly, learning from our patients, learning from those who have gone before and had some pretty awful experiences with healthcare, tragic and inexcusable experiences with healthcare that they are, you know, willing to come out and educate and, um, my practice has changed, right? Like, And it has to change for everyone. And that doesn't mean it's bad. That means here we are evolving and learning and hopefully growing, which is what I I hope for society is that just because something doesn't make sense to you or makes you uncomfortable or you have no exposure to it, the response shouldn't be panic, flee, shame, shoot down. It should be, all right, hmm. What do I need to know about that? How do I need to think about that? Who should I learn from about that? And that's all across the board, right? But in this space, especially, our kiddos deserve that from us. Our our trans community members deserve that from us. Like, let's learn and let's be better. Jen Plum, a pediatrician, but first and foremost, a mom, and she has a transgender child, a unique perspective coming together right in her own home. Regarding legislation on Utah's Capitol Hill, Equality Utah earlier today announced that for the third year in a row, they have blocked a bill that would deny parents the right to provide medically necessary health care for their transgender children. We'll see what happens with the Sports Commission on Transgender Youth. There's still a couple days left in the Utah legislative session. I'm Laura Jones. On behalf of Nick Burns and the Radioactive team, thank you for plugging into your community with us tonight. Questions, comments, suggestions, send us an email, radioactive at krcl.org. And for links to organizations and issues mentioned in tonight's show, don't forget, check the show notes. Under the Community Affairs tab at krcl.org, you'll find the Radioactive archives. Have a good night, everybody, and again, thanks for listening.